You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. But Pharaoh refuses, so God sends ten punishments onto the Egyptians. And the final, the most extreme one, the one that gets them out of there, is the Passover, where God would kill the firstborn of every family, Israelite or Egyptian, unless they had sacrificed a lamb in place of their firstborn. If the Israelites had taken the sacrificed lamb's blood and spread it over the doorframe of their house, God would pass over their household. So this Passover day is the start of a whole week of the festival of unleavened bread, where the Israelites were to avoid all leaven, which is basically yeast. Um, Now, I didn't hop on the pandemic trend of baking bread, but um, this won't surprise anyone. I never baked any bread in my life, and uh, I didn't really even know what unleavened bread is until I studied for the sermon. Um, Basically, it's flatbread. That's what we call it today. And they have this festival of unleavened bread to as a reminder of how urgently they exited Egypt, too fast to even allow the making of a proper bread. And God isn't vague to the Israelites on how he wants this Passover and festival of of unleavened bread to happen. He hands out specific instructions in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy. It's important to him that this celebration doesn't become a 4th of July, but instead it's a time of remembrance of what God has done For their people. God even gives specific instructions about where this had to happen. Every Jew was required to return to Jerusalem at this time. So when when we look at our passage and we see that the disciples are asking, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They're worried they're not going to find a place. Since this is every Jew visiting Jerusalem for the day, you're looking at like maple syrup level crowds. So we get this story about how Jesus provides them a place. And this passage doesn't say that it's a miracle, but like obviously the disciples found it pretty significant because it gets included in Matthew, it gets included in Mark, it gets included in Luke. And I'm not sure why they would go through the trouble of explaining this since they basically always skip these types of details. So I think this is probably a miracle. Anyways, we follow the disciples into this upper room and we see that this is not a normal Passover meal. Right? Jesus drops a stomach-turning bombshell as they're gathered together. He says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. It's really hard to communicate how this, is, this would have felt. Right? Mark matter-of-factly says, they began to be sorrowful. But one of the most sickening feelings is betrayal from someone you trust. Right? It's more than just sad. It's you actually feel it in your stomach. Your mind starts racing. You don't know what to do. So the disciples ask, is it, is it I? And if you look at the original Greek, it's actually more like, surely not I. And to reiterate, Jesus says, no, it's not someone else. It's one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And then uh, skipping to after the meal, around verse 27, we get a parallel story. But this time, instead of one of them betraying Jesus, Jesus tells them that they will all fall away by quoting the prophecy from Zechariah 13. We get Peter's direct quotes, but we see that all of them are saying the same thing. Even though everyone else is going to fall away, I will not. 
And we can, com- we can compare these two treacheries, right? Judas, he's sitting there, ice in his veins and a stone-cold heart towards Jesus with a premeditated plan already in place to betray the man he'd followed for three years. He's able to look Jesus directly in the eyes and ask, surely not I. The other 11, they're nervous, they're scared, yet they're naively confident in their dedication to Jesus. Both of these are bad examples. The 11 have good intentions. I don't think they're lying to Jesus. They just don't know how flaky they are. Jesus says, you will all fall away, which is the same word is when Jesus describes the rocky ground in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. It says, When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And fall away is exactly what they do that night. They abandon Jesus to his fate of execution while pretending they don't know who he is. But something strange happens to these meek, naive cowards. Despite on what happened that night, in a year you're going to find every single one of these 11 as brave and strident advocates of Jesus, standing up to tyrannical governments and religious oppression, with almost all of them eventually being killed because of how dedicated they are to Jesus. And what makes this change? The disciples see the resurrected Jesus just days after they abandoned him, and he gives them the Holy Spirit. But Judas is the opposite. He's been exposed to Jesus, and he's rejected him. Judas doesn't have good intentions. Judas never does turn the corner. Jesus gives us his sobering fate. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had not been born. So I want to challenge you today. Examine yourself. Are you like the terrified disciples? Are you going to say, I'd never deny Jesus, and then be too scared to say what you did on Sunday? Are you going to go to work and do your best to hide this part of your life from your coworkers? Are you going to be at school and suppress any conviction you have to try to fit in? Are you going to be with friends and not say anything because you tell yourself you don't want to be pushy, but in reality you're just too timid to be a Christian in front of others? And I know that some of you here, if you're honest, identify more with Judas. You're here, you're at church, playing along, but inside you know that you're totally shut off to the possibility of Jesus. There's good news and there's bad news. Bad news always first. In Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says, Whoever denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. There's no getting out of this yourself. Jesus is extremely clear that you can't sidestep this by behaving the right way or by doing nice things. If you've denied him, you've denied him. But there's good news. You are not committed to a fate of denial. No matter how far off you may feel, God can transform your heart with the Holy Spirit as he has with me and with so many others here. And with a view of the betrayals that bookend the core passage of today, we can look at communion. And FYI, I'm going to use communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, interchangeably. They're all different words for the same thing. Our passage says, And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. 
and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And we see in Luke that Jesus adds, do this in remembrance of me. This is the core instruction of communion, that Jesus asks us to eat bread and drink the fruit of the vine, as he mentions in verse 25, in remembrance of him. So can we just pause and reflect on how big of a deal this is? Jesus gives us a lot of principles and ideas on how to live, but he rarely ever gives us specific things that we're to do in our day-to-day life. This is a request that Jesus is giving directly to us. These simple instructions can seem a bit trite, but I think many of us have not given the Eucharist the thought and focus it deserves. So looking at it, I want to emphasize two aspects that are going to help us approach the table. It's gravity and our gratefulness. I fear that many Western evangelicals don't hold communion to the high standard the Bible intended for it, us included. We consume these elements with as much gravity and significance as we do a bowl of chips on the table or watching TV. When we sit there absentmindedly thinking about the football games on this afternoon or who's coming over for lunch and take the communion when we notice everyone else is taking it, we are not giving the Lord's Supper the reverence it deserves. The church in Corinth had a problem not treating communion with the gravity it deserved, and Paul addresses it very sternly. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 38, verse 27. Um, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and body of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This should be sobering. Like what Paul is informing us is that Christians in history have been punished with sickness and death for partaking in communion in an unworthy manner. And we know these are Christians being punished because in verse 32, Paul says this punishment is so that they may not be condemned along with the world. I'm not showing this to say you're going to die if you take communion improperly. Like God often uses a single warning and has it preserved as an example to show us how seriously he takes something. So the question on your mind should be, what is a worthy manner of taking communion? So I'm going to talk specifically about how we're to do it, what is taking place when we do it, and when to and when not to partake. So let's start on the how, and specifically, what's the reason we still use bread and wine? The first Lord's Supper takes place on the Passover. We've already talked about the Passover and the very specific regulations that God gave the Israelites. But you'll note that the focal point of the Passover meal, right, the sacrificed lamb, it's not even mentioned here. Jesus chooses the most basic parts of every ancient meal, bread and wine, as his elements of choice. The Lord's Supper is not something I think we should get, like, edgy with, like doing chips and beer or something. It's pretty plainly obvious that bread and wine, or grape juice, I'll get to that in a sec, are what Jesus asks us to use. But it's not an arbitrary selection. Jesus constantly uses bread as a symbol throughout his ministry. 
He talks about the leaven of the Pharisees. He multiplies bread. And he teaches us to pray by asking for our daily bread. And of all the foods he could have picked, breads are probably the single most universal and timeless. Almost every culture and every time period has had a bread. It's not a coincidence here that Jesus is using bread. And Jesus likewise uses wine a lot as a symbol throughout his ministry. His first miracle is turning water into wine. And he talks about how he's the vine and uses metaphors of wine and wineskins. And a quick note, you'll see that we use grape juice instead of wine. But if you look at all three accounts of Jesus instituting communion, although Jesus was like almost certainly drinking wine at the time, he's always quoted as saying, fruit of the vine. Whereas there's a different Greek word, which is used more often by these authors, that actually says wine. It appears Jesus left this intentionally ambiguous, but for simplicity, I'm just going to say wine from here on out. I don't want to say, or grape juice every time. Um, If we use bread and wine as our communion medium, we start to see the parallels that Jesus intended between the Passover and communion, and we can see how our communion is a greater form of the Jewish Passover. Passover uses the blood of a sacrificed lamb as the symbol of the blood that saved Israel's firstborns. Communion uses wine as a symbol of the blood of the greatest sacrifice, Jesus, that saves us all. Passover uses unleavened bread as a reminder of the hardship of that escape. Communion uses bread as a reminder of the hardship that Jesus endured so that we don't have to escape. Passover had a yearly per-family sacrifice of a lamb. Communion sacrificial lamb was once and for all. Passover was instituted on the brink of salvation from Israel's slavery to the evil Egyptian kingdom. Communion was instituted on the brink of salvation for the world from slavery to all evil. So I hope it's clear that some kind of bread and grape drink should be a part of this. Another part of the how is in what setting we should be taking communion. If we look back at our passage, it says that Jesus does this as they were eating, like during the meal, but not a part of the meal. And 1 Corinthians 11 passage at the end says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. If you look at this, there's two eats, right? The first eat is communion. The second one is supper. Paul's implying here that the Lord's Supper is not a full meal, rather something separate, where you can and should eat a full meal beforehand. These two passages show that the Lord's Supper isn't a whole meal in itself, but rather something that can happen detached from a full meal. Now that said, it certainly seems like this happens in close proximity to a meal, which is probably more than what we do here at Citizens. And I think our missional families are a great spot where this could happen close to a meal. If you get a chance to prepare this, I'd encourage you to bring bread and wine specifically for after the meal and use that as a more intimate communion. I think that's much closer to the environment of Eucharist in the early church and definitely to what Jesus had with his disciples at the first Lord's Supper. All right, so that's the how, the practical points of the way communion should look. Now we're on to what is taking place when we partake in communion. What I hope is already clear to you is that this is something that's more than just a snack in church. There's something special happening here. Something that is unique to communion that doesn't happen when we're having a normal meal together. There's four primary views on 
what's special about it. And to be honest, I was planning on spending a lot of my sermon discussing these different ideas. But as I read on this, I was really struck by how much division this specific debate has caused in church history. But on the back of like really pedantic, nitpicky arguments. I really do think that theology is important, but I can't help but think in this case, these weakly supported metaphysical differences are not really worth fighting over. So I'm just going to run over them really quickly. The first one is transubstantiation, which would be the Catholic viewpoint, where basically, in some sense, the bread and wine actually transform into Jesus' flesh and blood, just not in any physically observable way. Second one is consubstantiation is that the elements do not transform, but Jesus is uniquely present in, under, and through the elements. The third one is the spiritual presence, where Jesus is, based, is uh, presently, he's present in a spiritual way, um, but not in anything related to the elements, but in us. And then the final one is the memorial view, where we view it as a uniquely helpful reminder um, instituted by Jesus, but there's no extra spiritual presence. And again, these Really nitpicky differences caused by PhD-level word dissection. You know, we don't really need to worry too much about that. Ultimately, what I want you to take from this is that this is special. Something is happening here. Whether you think that it's the memorial service instituted by Jesus himself, or you think that Jesus is actually present in the elements, or anything in between, this is a time of immense importance and unique closeness to Jesus you don't get anywhere else. So we can now move on to the when or when not to partake in the Lord's Supper. So pretty much all this comes from 1 Corinthians 11, where we've already read, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and body of the Lord. And just before he mentions this, so like going back to like verse 17-ish, we see that Paul is chastising them for the way that they're doing their communion. We see that the rich people are bringing massive feasts and getting drunk during the meal, and the poor people are going hungry. They've basically done to the Lord's Supper what Nathan's hot dogs has done to the 4th of July, right? It's an off-the-rail celebration of gluttony that quickly forgets the purpose of this celebration. Here we can see that their hearts are not right. The Corinthians are putting themselves in their entertainment above the importance of what Jesus has asked us to do. And what Paul is making it clear is that if you're living in sin, the Lord's Supper is not for you. In fact, by taking part in it, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself, as Paul says in verse 29. There's two types of people who are living in sin. Firstly, there's non-Christians who, by the very definition, have never repented against their sin. If you're not a Christian— and you haven't yet trusted Jesus to cleanse yourself from your sins, then for your own sake, please don't take communion. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17 makes it very clear this is to be a Christian-only thing. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. How can you participate in the body or the blood without ever believing it happened? And how can you be part of the many who are one body if you're divided over the one thing that we hold in common? We don't want this to be an exclusive thing. We would love for you 
to be able to join us in this beautiful and amazing gift that Jesus has given us. But you need to receive Jesus' greatest gift of salvation first. The second group of people who shouldn't take communion is a bit trickier because these are the actual Christians. In Corinthians, these are Christians who are living a sinful, hedonistic lifestyle. But isn't that kind of all of us? This is where it gets tricky, right? The Lord's Supper is clearly a tradition that Jesus gave us for our benefit, with full knowledge of the very sins that he saved us from. We're supposed to do it regularly. The normal position as a Christian should be to take communion. However, there can be times where a real Christian is unwilling to accept Jesus' sacrifice and holds more firmly onto sinful passions than onto Jesus. John Piper describes this person very well. I want you to listen to this description and honestly assess your spirit. He says, He has become temporarily cavalier. He's not thinking about crucifying himself. He's not thinking about forsaking sin. He's fallen into a lukewarm frame of mind. And he's just casually taking these holy elements in some kind of distorted way to think that they might do him some good, when in reality, what he needs to do is fight the fight of faith. If this is you today, I pray that God would reignite your heart. So I hope I've imparted onto you the importance of the Lord's Supper. I hope you can feel the gravity, the criticality of the thing that Jesus has given directly to us. I hope you care that we do this right. And I hope that when we partake in a few minutes, none of you are able to do so absentmindedly. But I want to be careful here. There is immense importance, but there's a risk that communion becomes a funeral for Jesus with none of the gratefulness and joy that's appropriate. Think about how special this is. You are a follower of the God who created the universe and you and everything you love and treasure. And he's given you a special way to celebrate the single most important thing that he's done for you. If you look at any of the three accounts of Jesus instituting the Eucharist, you see that he gives thanks. And in fact, the word Eucharist in Greek is literally thanksgiving. We just had our thanksgiving last weekend, but every communion is to be a thanksgiving. If you look at verse 23, 24 of our passage, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The reason we're thankful is because of this very covenant. But what exactly is this covenant? Um, I didn't know this, but Matt kind of already spoke on it, (laughs) right? A covenant is basically a a deep way, a deep two-way promise and assurance that each party is required to remain committed to. A marriage is a covenant, right? Like a job contract or a house rental is not a covenant. In the times of the Israelites, they had formed a covenant with God based on the sacrifices like the Passover lamb. God had promised that if they remain faithful to him by doing these sacrifices and rituals, then he will be faithful to them by bringing them out of Egypt and protecting them as a people. But this covenant was broken by the Israelites. But then 2,600 years ago, the prophet Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, and though I was their husband, declared the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. <clears throat> Citizens, we are a part of that house of Israel and house of Judah. If you don't believe me, read Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. This is talking to us. This new covenant is what Jesus is referring to in verse 24, right? The blood of his covenant. Hebrews, which we preached through in early 2021 and which Matt read from, is probably the best book that explains this new covenant. So I'm going to look at chapter 9, starting at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who, through the spirit, eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We no longer need death to preserve the temporary purification before God. We no longer need to sacrifice a lamb for Passover. We are no longer liable under the first covenant. Jesus, in an act so unimaginable that you can't believe it without your life being transformed, has promised us an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away. There are no words for how thankful we should be. Every finite word is incapable of capturing the magnitude of the gift we have received. But Jesus doesn't ask us to describe it. He asks us to partake in it. And so we will as we move into a time of Eucharist. Um, if, you haven't gra- if you'd like a communion packet and haven't grabbed one, uh, Darren's just going to be at the back and you can grab uh, one if you haven't got it yet. So, as we partake in this communion, we sit with the gravity of this sacrament given directly to us by Jesus himself. This is not a triviality. This is not a minor thing. This is not a time to check out and daydream. This is a time to be honest with ourselves. If you're a non-Christian or a Christian who right now is not willing to give up their sin for your own sake, just sit and let this time go by. I'll give us a minute to reflect on the magnificence of the blood of the covenant, to pray with an overflowing thankfulness that we are not condemned, to look forward with joy to the eternal inheritance that we've been promised, and to consume the very elements that Jesus instructed us to 2,000 years ago. God, we thank you for this time that you can be uniquely present with us. We thank you for the bread, your body, broken so that we may, we may be made whole. We thank you for the wine, your blood, poured out so that we may be participants in the new covenant. God, may we be unwaveringly focused on the cross this week. 
We thank you. Amen.